Good morning. You are listening to Mornings with Radio Maria with me, Anna Fleischer, from our London studio with Malcolm Geit, poet, Hello. academic, uh, fellow of Girton College, Anglican priest. And he's here to talk to us about this is the final day of the week of Christian unity. Um, so I'll hand over to you to t- tell us a bit about what, what this week is, week of prayer for Christian yeah. unity. Yeah. And so, what, mm-hmm. yeah, so the week, there is there has been you know, for many years a a designated week. It's this week in January that leads up to the 25th uh, uh, you know, of January today, which is uh, the feast of the conversion of St. Paul. Mm-hmm. And it was felt, I think, because St. Paul was this great missionary who broke down the dividing walls. He was the one that really persuaded an essentially Jewish church that the Gentiles should be counted in and that the Lord was for all the whole world. And, of course, he, he, he wrote famously about, you know, you who were close and you who were far off being brought together and Christ breaking down the dividing walls. So I think it was felt that he was a good patron, as it were, for this. So it sort of moves. Mm -hmm. That's why this particular week is chosen. But the movement, what's uh, the the term is it, the the ecumenical movement, as it's called, which is this movement of trying to get more cooperation and visible unity between the, the tragically divided churches of Christendom. That's been been a strong movement really since the beginning of the 20th century. There was a very famous uh, conference actually of missionaries in Edinburgh in 1910 where mm-hmm. where people felt that one of the great obstacles to sharing the faith, which was a common goal of all Christians, of all denominations that we we, we want uh, and, uh, to see the evangelization of, of, of the world, um, that uh, that the presence on the same mission field of different and apparently competing branches or brands of Christianity was mm-hmm. itself causing confusion and was a kind of scandal. So, so the impulse to be together uh, really arose out of the impulse to mission, and I think that's still there. Of course, that goes right back to to Jesus's own prayer that's given us in John, what's sometimes called the High Priestly Prayer, where he prays for the church, which is he's bringing into being and he says that they may be one as we are one as the father is in me and i'm in the father that they may all be one and that they may be one so that the world will know that you have sent me so there's a uh, that's the first thing Mm -hmm. it's not just a bunch of committees getting together because they'd like to be more friendly it's driven by the sense that we've been given this beautiful and and you know imperishable and life-changing message to share with the world and it doesn't help if we're if we're quarrelling with one another on the way to do it. So that's where it all comes from. I mean, I'm not. Uh, I, I mean, I used to be. Um, there, there are various little sort of bodies. There are little committees, of course. There's a when I was in Cambridge, there was a Cambridge uh, churches together, which would do things in this week, and I was a joint chair of it once. But I want to take us out of the sort of you know little groups of well-meaning people sitting on mm-hmm. committees looking for unity, although that's important. And think about unity really in two other ways. First of all, it's kind of extraordinary that we should say there's just a week of prayer for Christian unity. Um, because Jesus not only prayed for, but prays for Christian unity. We believe that he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. And he himself is is praying for the unity of his followers. But I I, I would take it further. I mean, I sometimes think that what we perceive as the disunity, what we perceive as the fragmentation of of the churches, maybe only, as it were, our our fantasy, as though somebody should come up, up, up on a great masterpiece and start drawing pencil lines all over it. 
underneath it's still the single work of art. And if there's only one Jesus Christ and one Lord, and the church is the body of Christ, then in some sense, absolutely, and you know, in, in, in terms of absolute being, there can only be one church. And I sometimes think, you know, uh, we love to sing the Magnificat and Mary's great song in, in, in the Anglican tradition. That's quite a big thing to sing beautiful settings of the, of the Magnificat. And there's a great line in it where she says, they are scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. Now, I'm not trying to do a piece of full-on scholarly biblical criticism, mm -hmm. but it's just sometimes seemed to me, as I've heard that in Mary's song, that maybe we are only scattered in the imagination of our hearts. Maybe when we actually meet one another, when we see ourselves together, when we're able to pray the Lord's prayer together, uh, we actually find a deeper unity than, than we realized existed. And I think ultimately we are we are held together in Christ. I mean, a Christian is a person not only who believes a set of things about about Christ, but a person who is in Christ. What well, that's what the, the lovely old-fashioned word christened used to mean, mm -hmm. christened then Christed. So, um, so I have, you know, even though it is sad that you know that we have these divisions, and we have a hymn that has the line, "Make thou our sad divisions soon to cease." Um, I have optimism because I think Christ in the end loves his church and will hold it together. And uh, the other thing which I've noticed uh, is that um, it is true that the closer people in any division or denomination or congregation, the closer they come on a personal and spiritual journey, the closer they come to Jesus, the closer they come to each other. If we're all, you know, Mm -hmm. Jesus says about it, he says, I'll be lifted high on the cross, I will draw all men to me. And um, if we're, you know, if, if, if several people setting off from different directions are making for the same tower on a hill, then even though they're just aiming for the tower and not particularly talking to each other, they will, in fact, all come closer together the closer they get to their object. So that's something that gives me hope. Mm -hmm. Wonderful. Do you want to talk maybe a bit about um, your, I guess, I guess your personal experience of um, Christian unity and what yeah. you gain from people of different Christian traditions? Yeah, I'd, I'd be very happy to do that. Um, I, and the first thing to say is that not only do I owe an immense amount to um, to people who are not in my particular denomination, both past and present, but I'm, I myself, if you like, I'm a kind of product of a kind of Christian unity. My my mother grew up in the Presbyterian tradition and my father was a Methodist local preacher. So even by getting married, they were bringing two denominations together because well, because the much greater thing is my mother was a Scotswoman and my father was English. So was, that was that's bringing the Scots and the English together. <laughs> anyway, um, so I was brought up initially in a kind of essentially Methodist household, but like a lot of people in their teens, you know, I questioned everything and I lost my faith and I, I was briefly persuaded of the whole purely reductive materialist scientific paradigm until I got deeply into poetry and then realized that there is a spiritual dimension of things. Anyway, by various things and partly actually by listening to a wonderful Franciscan friar um, called Eric Doyle, I, I came back to faith as an undergraduate. But one of the things that was very important to coming back to faith for me was the sacrament and was 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 liturgy and Eucharist and music. So uh, anyway, uh, I, I ended up, I suppose, partly because you know we had a very good chaplain in the college. I ended up becoming when I returned to Christianity. I thought I was returning to Christianity itself, but obviously you have to. Um, 
as Lewis says in mere, mere Christianity, you know, you can't stay hang around into the corridor in the corridor of Christianity forever. You actually have to join a community and be involved in a church. So I ended up in the Church of England, and that was not a an issue at all to either my Presbyterian or my Methodist father, mother or my Methodist father, because they were delighted I'd become a Christian again. So I was already in a sense that we're kind of all on the same side, really. And as it happened, you know, the Franciscan friar who who's whose speaking helped me so much was a Roman Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I, I was studying English literature, so I realized, you know, that I was, uh, you know, how important Christianity, which was pre-Reformation, Catholic Christianity was in the formation of the, the poetry, particularly the medieval poetry that I loved. So I, I, of course, to understand that, I began to read uh, the earlier theologians, I read Augustine and 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 then later on uh, uh, Thomas Aquinas and found a great deal of good in both of them. Um, so I wasn't suddenly put into a hermetically sealed box labeled Church of England. You know? <laughs> um, I was influenced by everything. And of course, eventually the time came that, that I became aware of, of the of the, the Eastern Fathers, the Cappadocians. I've been mainly reading in the Western, you know, Augustine and Leo and, and, and Jerome and people like that. So I then really got into Gregory of Nyssa and I realized there's this whole other stream, mm-hmm. you know, uh, of, 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 of orthodox thinking, which was extremely helpful and put more emphasis, for example, on, um, on things like the incarnation. Obviously, Athanasius is great, great, book on the incarnation. So my mind as a Christian was being formed by influences both East and West and and by a variety of denominations. And then, of course, you meet people and you gradually realize that you can have really deep friendships. One of my my oldest friend, friendships and, and the deepest friendships is, is, is with a, a uh, a Roman Catholic, you know, whom we met at college, and and we've been friends ever since. And he's he's godfather to my son. Mm-hmm. Now, one of the things that we do is, or pretty much annually, we make a pilgrimage together. And because I I also, as an Anglican, and some Anglicans do, I I have a strong sense of of the presence and intercession intercession and holiness of of Our Lady. We'll say the Rosary together on these pilgrimages. But he's not trying to make me jump ship from my denomination, and I'm not trying to make him jump ship from his denomination. I think the great ships will come together and come together at a common destination. But I don't think there's a lot of point of each of us jumping into little lifeboats and rowing across, as it were, individually. I think the great work for church unity is done when people of different denominations are able to pray together, find a common cause together, and 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 have and build deep friendship. I think that's where that must, I think, rejoice Christ's heart. You know, um, and uh, the other thing I think, which is really helpful, and I, again, I've noticed this is a it's, it object is not ecumenism, but actually has the effect of promoting it, is when local Christians get together to do essentially good works together to do the work of, of that Jesus asked us to do. Of, mm-hmm. of clothing the naked and feeding the hungry and, and visiting those in prison. So, for example, in the unfortunate the fact we've had to have food banks, is a very sad fact about our country, but it is, 
lots of Christians are involved in that. And working side by side, packing the boxes or delivering them, you'll find, you know, Catholic and Protestant and Orthodox, and you'll find all the different denominations. And they're not sitting there talking church politics. They're getting on with doing the work that Jesus asked us to do. And of course, they naturally find themselves side by side. And that's perhaps the best kind of Christian unity. Wonderful. Um, we have uh, a piece of music that you've chosen. Cat Stevens' Morning Has Broken. Do you want to say a bit about why you chose it? Well, I, 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 mean, I love it. I like Cat Stevens. The first time I, it's a hymn, of course, but I never heard it as a hymn in church. The first time I heard it was on a Cat Stevens record. And I've chosen it because it's about creation and new creation. And it has this beautiful idea of everything springing fresh from the word. And that you go out any morning, it's like the beginning of creation again. And that's another thing that gives me hope. The church is God's creation, you know. There's a beautiful image that in some ways, just as, you know, symbolically speaking, just as as Eve was drawn from the side of of Adam. So some people see the church as drawn from the side of Christ, the pierced Mm -hmm. side of Christ, and nurtured by the blood and water, by the sacraments of of communion and baptism. So she's she's like a kind of bride, if you like, to Christ, like a, a second Eve to a to a second Adam. And um, you know, if he creates his church like that, he can recreate his church. We can always begin again at any moment and be his fresh creation. And that's what I get from that song. Wonderful. Morning 
Morning Has Broken by Cat Stevens and that was chosen by our guest on Mornings with Radio Maria this morning, uh, Malcolm Geet. Um, now, Malcolm is a, a poet and an academic and an Anglican priest and has been talking a bit about Christian unity. I just, I guess I wanted to ask, like, how, how do we go about Christian unity that's not a kind of pat indifferentism that sort of takes theological differences uh, seriously while still yeah. really loving each other, I guess? Yeah, that's that's a very very good question, and I'm glad you mentioned that that word indifferentism. There was, um, you know, I think the church's teaching is really important. I think we should take our doctrines and our dogmas seriously and shouldn't see them as a problem. I remember when when I was a school teacher in school assemblies, they used to sing a, um, you know, quite nice song, but but, but it had this line. Um, and the creed and the color and the race won't matter, were you there? And I noticed creed was always being dismissed as, well, forget about the creeds, let's just all get along. Yeah. And I, I don't think that's the way to unity. I mean, I think that that just involves denying something that is part of what makes us who we are. So I think creed is really important. I have to say, having said that, I think that the, the great core creeds, particularly the Nicene Creed mm-hmm. and Apostles' Creed are shared by many churches of different denominations. I mean, those are recited in 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 the Roman Catholic Church, and they're just recited in the Anglican Church, and you know they're common inheritance. Um, but I think if we belong, we have to respect the rules of the the group to which we belong. So, for example, I mean, um, when when I walked to to Walsingham um, with my Catholic friend, you know, and we were walking and praying together and therefore had that kind of unity. We respected the rules of each other's denominations that in the end, when we went for communion, he went to his church and I went to mine because we're not going to jump the gun and we're not going to to take it upon ourselves as individuals just to change, you know, the, the arrangements that, that mm-hmm. our church made. And uh, I think there's another level where that's been. There's, I mean, the, in the ecumenical talks, there was a set of talks between Anglicans and Roman Catholics called formal talks called Archic, which looked at um, these big issues of baptism, Eucharist, and ministry, and the divisions. You know, you don't you don't become friends or have unity by denying difference. Mm-hmm. It's precisely within the context of difference. And therefore, it may mean that friends want passionately to persuade one another of something. I mean, you know, um, I'm, 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 I'm sure my, my uh, you know, my, my Catholic friend would be delighted if I did become a Roman Catholic. <laughs> but, mm-hmm. um, you know, I, and that's a very proper thing for him to think. Um, but he knows that, that uh, he he can't, you know, our friendship is an end in itself. It's yeah. been given to us by God. He can't make the friendship the means to that end. I'm sure he prays for that. And, you know, equally, I have views that I would like him to take seriously as well. And 
taking difference seriously and finding a courteous way to discuss it is part of what what friendship means and i think we're in great need in this world of what what uh, a writer called diana glyer has called intellectual hospitality yes that is to say you make somebody else's ideas welcome you take the best of what somebody has to say you don't argue against the worst example of what they are or do you don't you set up straw men you don't argue ad hominem you just say I'm going to take you seriously. You're going to take me seriously. We may still disagree at the end of this, but we'll be clearer about what we disagree about, and we'll have recognised each other's desire for truth. Mm-hmm. And I think that that goes a long way. And particularly as we're coming up to all these election years in various, it, you know, the more simple grace and charity and courtesy with which we can hear one another, the better. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think good ecumenism is not about fudging the issues. The closer you get, the clearer the differences become, as well as the desire for unity. And you just have to hold those in tension. And of course, the New Testament is full of that. When you look in the Acts of the Apostles about the various struggles the church had, you know, first with admitting Gentiles and then with the question of, you know, whether, you know, whether Christians needed to be circumcised. There were a whole series of hot button issues in those days. And basically, people needed the Holy Spirit worked in people and they needed to be, to be, and there were wonderful examples of people changing their minds. I mean, most famously, Peter mm-hmm. went on the roof at Joppa and is saying, oh, nothing unclean, I'm totally kosher. And then, you know, a chap arrives and asks him to go into the house of the Gentile family, Cornelius. And Peter does it, breaks that taboo, if you like, and then he sees the work of the Holy Spirit in that family and he sees God is at work there, just where he didn't think God would be at work. And a change is made. Do you have any uh, poetry? You are a poet. So do you have any yeah, poetry um, that yeah. sort of speaks I think, to this? Yeah, I was thinking about, have I, have I written a poem, you know, about Christian unity? I'm not sure I've written it about that topic. But I have to say, my poems have been part of a kind of Christian unity. For example, I have a, I have a sequence of 15 sonnets on the Stations of the Cross. And those are used in Anglican and Catholic churches, you know, around the world. So... My poetry has been, I think, enjoyed across the different denominations. But I was thinking for a poem, you know, um, one of the things we also think about in January in our lectionary is the um, the baptism of Jesus, which is a kind of, we think about it in the Epiphany season because, of course, the heavens open and God says, this is my beloved. And, of course, the baptism of Jesus is, is a moment of revelation. It, it's a moment of realizing who he is. But of course, it's something we participate in, in the sense that we are baptized into Christ. So um, I've got a poem, which on the baptism, it's a little song, it's quite short, about how when the heavens open and the father declares that, that this is his beloved son, and then the spirit descends on Jesus. It's the first time in the, in the New Testament that you actually see the whole of the holy and undivided trinity as it were, mm-hmm. given a glimpse or a vignette. And that's what we're invited into. We're invited when we step into the river of baptism, into this glorious exchange of love between Father, Son and Spirit. And if we want a model for unity with difference of persons, but one oneness of substance, then the Holy Trinity is, is it. Um, anyway, so here's a little poem. It's just called Epiphany on the Jordan. Beginning here, we glimpse the three in one. The river runs. The clouds are torn apart. The Father speaks. The Spirit and the Son reveal to us the single loving heart that beats behind the being of all things and calls and keeps 
and kindles us to light. The dove descends, the spirit soars and sings, you are beloved, you are my delight. In that quick light and life, as water spills and streams around the man like quickening rain, the voice that made the universe reveals the God in man who makes it new again. He calls us too to step into that river, to die and rise and live and love forever. That's wonderful. So, mm-hmm. Thank you. And it's in, this is the week when sometimes people renew their baptism vows. And um, I suppose uh, that goes to my hope about Christ. I think the more we allow Jesus and the Holy Spirit to renew us, then the more we must recognize Christ and the Spirit in one another and come closer together. Wonderful. I think that's a good note to end on. But thank you very much, Malcolm, uh, for coming on Mornings uh, with Radio Maria this morning to talk a bit to us about Christian unity. And I believe you'll be coming back on Radio Maria fairly soon in February to to discuss poetry. Yes, I think in February I'm going to do a couple of sessions about my poetry, about various things, yeah. Mm -hmm. So I look for that. Yes, wonderful. Thank you. Thank you.